Why hurt people hurt people. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep with Nathan Spiteri, the author of the newly released memoir, Hoy Cars, One Man's Journey from Triumph to Trauma. And Nathan is out there doing the Lord's work. This book is raw. It's real. It's insightful. And it is shining a light on some very heavy yet important subject matter that needs to be discussed, which I will get to in a sec. But first, I want to say, now, Nathan may not be the typical guest that we would have on here. Yes, he endured trauma and abuse as a child, but it was not at the hands of his family. In fact, he grew up in a rather healthy and functional family. I guess those do really exist, guys. Who the hell knew that? (laughs) But while not at the hands of his parents, the trauma and the abuse that he endured as a kid resulted in these same characteristics in adulthood that growing up in a dysfunctional family often has. I had him listen to the first episode of the pod, and his comment back to me was that he could really relate to all of the characteristics So, Nathan, I am deeming you an adult child. So welcome to the damn club. Now, this book is so good. I highly recommend it. However, it is not a beach read. This is not some light, breezy reading. This is a heavy story. It is the story of surviving the unimaginable. This is a story of child sex abuse, of grooming, of manipulation, of trauma bonding, of Stockholm Syndrome. And this is also a story of how hurt people hurt people, of how the pain that Nathan endured as a child caused him to harm others in adulthood. And I'm going to let him share with y'all about this, but what I want to make abundantly clear is that I am not saying or implying that he subsequently sexually abused children when he became an adult. He did not do that. So just making that very clear. So we've talked so much about healing and how this requires that we examine the past, that we look at the stuff that we've avoided looking at, talking about, feeling, feelings towards our entire lives and how painful that can be. But healing also requires that we look at the present and that we look at our actions and thoughts and behaviors as adults. And this can be equally as painful as examining the past because it requires that we get honest about the ways in which we have harmed ourselves and others. And in order for us to heal, we must take full accountability for the ways in which we have harmed others. But we must do this in a compassionate way. We do not use the past as an excuse. However, we do confront the ways that we have harmed others with the understanding of the role that our childhood played in this, with the understanding 
that hurt people hurt people. We are not evil people. We are not bad people. And that the way that we have harmed ourselves and harmed others is truly just this warp and twisted way of protecting ourselves, faulty defense mechanisms. And so healing is not just about looking at the unresolved pain of the past. It is about connecting the past with the present and the present with the past. What I think is beautiful about Toy Cars, about Nathan's book, or one of the many things that's beautiful about it, is the way in which he discusses the ways that he has harmed others as a result of what he went through as a kid. Taking full responsibility and accountability, but doing it with the understanding that this is a result of what he endured as a child. And that's not making an excuse for it, but that in order to stop harming himself and harming others, he had to do the work to heal the pain of the past. So one more thing before Nathan, and no, I'm not going to say give me a five-star rating on Apple, although I am going to say that. Give me a five-star rating on Apple, please. But the Patreon is up and launched. I'm sure you're like, shut the hell up about the Patreon, Andrea. I'm not. Head on over to www.patreon.com slash adult child for as little as $5 a month. You can get access to exclusive content. You can have access to support groups and live virtual events with guests. And you can put your head on the pillow at night knowing that you are a good person. Just kidding. Uh, But if you sign up by Friday, you will get a free adult child former shit show coffee mug. Pretty cool, guys. Uh, And I just want to give a shout out to those of y'all who have already signed up. So special thanks to Debbie, Jennifer, Elizabeth, Seema, Dana, Karen, Tamara, Kristen, Kate, Kelly, Jessica, aka Jessica, Auntie M, and Michelle. You guys are the shit. Uh, That was all ladies. Where my dudes at? Come on, dudes. Is it going to be Rick? Is it going to be Richard? Is it going to be Kirk? Is it going to be Kenny? Is it going to be Steve? Okay, I'm going to shut up now. Uh, But I do just want to say, regardless of whether you sign up for the Patreon or not, I want to express my gratitude for each and every one of you. I'm truly honored to be a part of your life and for y'all to listen to this damn voice for an hour each week. So thank you so much. Better get on back to town. Face the sad old truth, the dirty laws. I wonder, 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 wonder. Put those ideas in your head. I wonder, 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 What is my pleasure to introduce? Nathan Spateri. He is the author of the memoir, Toy Cars. And he's also a a former shit show, just like me, just like all of you guys listening. He might still be a little bit of a shit show in the present too, just like me. Uh, Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's the, that's the the nicest introduction introduction you've ever had. It really is. And it's very fucking true. And I think we'll always be a bit of a shit show, won't we? Yeah, I don't want to be proud I, of it. Absolutely. I don't want to be perfect. I don't want to be that perfect person. No one's perfect. We're all but a bit of shit nuts. show, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, crazy and proud. 
Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah, you have to come in full disclosure, right? Like you got to let people know what they're stepping into. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you're a little unique as a guest in the sense that your story is, um, I would say that you definitely are an adult child in a sense, but not necessarily because of your nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that you still resulted in, uh, there was, you know, faulty programming, faulty beliefs and fears that were ingrained in you as a child, as a result of your experiences, maybe not directly caused by your parents, but you told me that when you listened to the first episode that you could, you really related to the traits at the end, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, I, I, I do, I still see myself as an adult child and, and listening to your first episode really brought a lot of stuff up for me and really kind of brought it home. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll do things during the day and I'm like, why the fuck am I doing that? Or where is that coming from? I, I'm acting like a little, like a little kid and I don't know where it's coming from, but again, it is from the things that happened to me in my past and just see, you know, the lies and the grooming and the manipulation and everything else that came with it, that it just was ingrained in me so, so hard and so much that that was, that was it. That was all I knew. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, from an eight year old, as an eight year old boy, I had to grow up. I had to be an adult to survive. And, and if I didn't, I was going to, I don't know, end up dead or end up in a very bad place. Well, I want everyone to read your book, obviously, but I do want to talk about it. I mean, there's so much in there. Um, I feel like we would need 5 million hours to talk about it, but why don't you, I don't know. Do you want to give like the, the five to 10 minute overview of what happened as a kid? And then we can kind of go into the other stuff afterwards. Um, well, I'm Australian, grew up in Australia, grew up in Canberra, which is the capital, um, capital of australia it's not a new york accent no it's not my new york accent i'll put that on for you later no oh actually i did want to ask you that because i've always i was interviewing another guy from australia and i was like can you do a um an american accent for me can you do one for me now because you're an actor let's hear this all right i'll do it for you so what happened to me was i grew up in australia and i grew up in canberra which is the capital city of australia and I grew up in a little town just outside of that. And, and I was eight years old. It was the summertime. So it was just, I think it was just after Christmas. Oh God, that's so weird. <laughs> so, I was, so, so it was just after Christmas and I was eight years old. And, you know, we're talking the mid eighties. So mid eighties, our parents would send us out as kids and say, don't come home till, till my time or till 6 PM tonight or whatever the situation was. So me and my sister, she was, I was eight. She was probably 10 or 11. Um, we went down to the local swimming pool as, you know, literally the whole town did during the summertime. Um, we'd done it a thousand times before I would ride Where is my Canberra bike. in Australia. Is that so on in Canberra on is on the coast? East coast. Okay. Canberra is a three hour drive South of Sydney. Sydney. Okay. Canberra is literally located in between Sydney and Melbourne. Okay. Got it. And when Australia was discovered and, and they were trying to, uh, get a capital city that Sydney and Melbourne were the two big cities they were fighting over being the capital city. So they gave it to this little country town in the middle of, in the middle of them. And, and that's Canberra, which I think now has a population of probably about half a million people. So it's, okay. you know, it's growing, it's getting there. But anyway, back to my story. I was at the local swimming pool with my sister. She left early to go and hang out with her friends. And I'm like, sure, fine. That's okay. I'll just get home. I'll just ride my bike home on my own, which I've done again, hundreds of times before. And 
I decided to stay there till the very end. I, I stayed there till literally everyone was gone besides maybe one or two people. I went into the change rooms to get changed and, and shower. And this man followed me in there, followed me into the shower, and he raped me in the shower. And the first words he said to me was that if I tell anyone, he'll kill me and kill my family. So as an eight-year-old, again, in the mid-80s, that's all you know. Um, you know, we don't have access to mobile phones, to the internet, to, to what we do now. So um, that went on for about five, six years of, of this abuse with this man. And it started out very violent with the grooming, with the manipulation, with the lies, with him telling me that he loves me, that my parents hate me, that my, I had a sister or my sister and I've got two younger brothers, but one of them wasn't born then. So I had my sister and younger brother. So he would say, your sister and brother don't love you. They all hate you. If you tell anyone, they're going to think you're a liar. And then he would put it on me saying, I saw you, I, I noticed you looking at me at the pool. You picked me up at the pool. This is what you wanted. You know, you're a very special boy. This only happens to special boys, blah, blah, blah. So just a continuation, continuation. And it was just ingrained in me. So from a very violent where he would, you know, beat me up a little and, and shove me up against the wall and choke me out. And, and, and then, you know, he would rape me violently, penetrate me violently and, and, from there, it turned into a, a Stockholm syndrome type relationship where through the grooming, through the manipulation, through the lies where I felt love for this guy, I wanted to be with this guy. I didn't want to be with my, my family. I didn't want to be and, and didn't want to love my parents and my brother and my sister and my friends. And it was all about him. So I would go down to his house looking for him or, or I would wait for him to pick me up. Or you How know, far away did he live from where you lived? I would ride my bike to him in about... 10 minutes okay you know, in a car it'd be two minutes three minutes um and then from there he uh, i say this he he abandoned me when i was 12 13, when i was about, i think it was about end, end of 12 12 13 years old and i was lost i didn't know who i was where i was what i was where i belonged who i belonged with am i gay am i straight am i you know whatever the fuck what what was i you know this guy who told me he loved me and this guy who was my world had suddenly just abandoned me, had disappeared out of my life. And I was like, what the fuck? So for two years, three years, that just built and built and built. And I was like, oh, what do I do? What, you know, again, what am I? Who am I? From there, I was about 15 years old and I would ride my bike at about 15. I would ride my bike to the suburbs called Fishwick, which was the industrial part of Canberra. And in this industrial suburb were all the brothels, all the sex shops, all the cruise lounges. Um, and I, I knew about it because, you know, we had to drive kind of through that suburb and right next to that suburb to get from Queen into Canberra. So, you know, we drove through it and pass it every day. So, you know, we all knew about it. Everyone knew what, what Fishwick was. So I would drive, I would ride my bike there, say from 15 years onwards for a good 10 years or so and, and go to these cruise lounges, these gay clubs and pick up men and did what I did with them either there and then I'd beat them up and bash them and rob them and get what I could out of them. And that was my, my fuck you to the world. That was my way of getting my power back. That was my, my way of feeling alive. Um, and as much as I hated it and I fucking hated it, I loved it. I craved it. I needed it because that was all I knew. Um, penetration and, and, and being raped and, and sex with men was all I knew. So that went on for a good few years. And then from there I discovered drugs and ecstasy and, Jesus, cocaine and speed and acid and literally everything. And, you know, 
was a bit of a mess, started personal training and, and um, moved to Sydney. So in Sydney, I thought I'd get away from Canberra, get away from that life, moved to Sydney, was a personal trainer there and kind of fell back into the old ways. Um, and in the meantime, I was doing some acting and some modeling and, and was kind of invited over to, to New York to study acting and to, to pursue this acting career. And I'm like, yes, because my way of getting away from life and from everything as a kid, as an eight-year-old onwards was I would just, you know, as my brothers, my brother and sister would play outside with the kids in the neighborhood and hang out with my mum and dad. All I would do is just sit in my parents' bedroom or in another room and just watch TV and watch movie after movie after movie, TV show after TV show. And that was my escape from real, from real life. And all I wanted to do was be an actor and all I wanted to do was be in these movies. So I was invited over to New York and I went to over to the States. So I came to New York and studied at HB studio. And again, I thought, yes, I'm going to move to New York to get away from all the bullshit that's happened in Australia, all the, you know, the drama and the, 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 the violence and sex and, and whatnot, the drugs, you know, you move to New York and it's <laughs> the, the rest is history. Um, the drugs are easier, more accessible, cheaper, the sex, the violence, you know, whatever you want, you can get it here. So again, I fell into it and I started shooting heroin and smoking crack and really went deep and dark and tried killing myself. And, you know, again, with the violence and the sex clubs and the cruise lounges until I hit rock bottom, almost killed myself and someone else. When I finally, for the first time in my life, after 25 years, told my best friend, Mm-hmm. who was ready to give up on me because she was done. She couldn't handle me anymore and, and where I was going. So I, you know, took her to a cafe and, and we told her and it was amazing. It was like, I still remember it like it was yesterday. It was wintertime. It was February. It was just after my birthday. We were sitting in the middle of the cafe and which is now a laundromat, mind you. <laughs> it was what year a veget- was this? Yeah, la, la, 2010, I think. Okay. So it was called Snice. It was it's in nice. the West Village. Well, that sounds nice. It was a vegan vegetarian cafe. It was great. It was right near our school, so we'd always go there after school. Um, so we went there, and I told her, I said, listen, there's something I need to tell you. And she's like, well, fucking tell me because I'm done, and I can't do this with you anymore. And I, I kind of just blurted out everything, told her everything. And, you know, we were sitting in the middle of the cafe, and the cafe was full of people, and I was crying and just, I guess I was speaking loud because once we finished – Literally every single table around us was just sitting there staring at us and going, what the fuck? <laughs> so, best show in town. Yeah, yeah, it was the best show in town. So through that, she helped me get therapy for the first time. And then I got therapy, group therapy, went to AA, Narcotics, Sex Anonymous, but ended up in just doing AA and then, you know, continued on with my therapy and, and group and, and, and just built it from there. So now I'm in a place in the world where I know who I am. I know what happened to me. I know, you know, I understand my life now and why this happened to me and where I'm at and everything else. And, and from there, it's just kind of built and built and built to the point where I was offered a, a, um, or a publishing house reached out to me and asked me to write my memoir. So I'm like, shit, fuck. Yes, sure. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then I, procrastinated on it for a few months thinking, I don't know how to do this. I can't fucking do this. This is, what am I doing? I'm not a writer, but I I sat and wrote it. And that was at the beginning of COVID, which was a bit of a blessing in disguise because I just sat in my house all day for five months and wrote every single day. And I had my first draft. I had it out by April, 2020. Uh 
And then it was a year of rewriting and cleanups with editors here in New York and in Australia. And the book was released in May. And, and it's phenomenal. There there, and that was good. Life. That was like the perfect <laughs> little 10 minute summary. I love it. All right. Perfect. I don't know how the hell you didn't become like a hardcore heroin addict. Like that just baffled me. What, what, what's amazing is that all the drugs I've done my whole life, all the, the cocaine, and I was doing a lot of cocaine, a lot of ecstasy. I'd go out on weekends and do 10 pills a night and, and for the weekend and just, but throughout my life and touch wood, mm-hmm. I have never, ever had an addictive personality where I could do it and then I could just let it go. But heroin did draw me in, but I was lucky enough not to. And I think I was just so busy in my life that I was able to get away from it. And then I'd travel back home to Australia for a few months or for a few weeks and and leave it and kind of clean up. And then I'd, it was just kind of falling in and out of, of, of addiction and, and, and needing it. And I was, I was, yeah, absolutely. Very, very, very lucky. 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 That would have been a totally different ball game. Absolutely. Um, so you say in the book, well, first of all, what did we learn about this guy? So, you, you know, he, you say he banded you. I mean, is it possible? I mean, obviously, so the scene is, is that, you know, when you would go over there, you would see a picture of a girl in, yeah. that was there and you eventually asked him who that was and he didn't say, and it was pretty obvious that it was his daughter. And then, so one day when you hadn't seen him for a while, you go over there, you knock on the door and I assume it's his wife and the daughter's there. And she basically says he doesn't live there anymore. I mean, is it possible that, I mean, he left town completely? I, yeah, I think so. I, I, I was, I, what I have found out and what I do know and, and, yeah. How did you find it? Cause you heard he died. How did you find yeah. out who he was and all of that? Cause did you even know his name then? I know I, I didn't. Cause as an eight year old kid, you, you don't, cause he would never, he would never, obviously he would never say anything about himself. It was always me and it was never questions and never this. And he would just come here, sit here, do this, do that. It was never, hi, my name is Steve or my name is Bob or my name is whatever the fuck his name was. So I had no idea what his name was. Um, and then when I came out about this story and, and I spoke to my mom and, and there was a big article about it in the, in the, in the paper. And, and, but my mom spoke to a few friends because, you know, mom grew up in this small little town and, and obviously growing up in this small town, you, you hear about pedophiles and rapists and this and that, and blah, blah, blah. So she had spoken to quite a few of her friends and they were kind of putting two and two together. And then I, there was, there was a history of, of abuse at the, at, the, at the pool, at this pool. So, you know, they could kind of put two and two together when I said it happened at the pool first. So, you know, I, I then got together with mom and spoke with her and then one or two of her friends and, and we found out who he was and they kind of told me a bit of a history and the wife left him and I think he, he left town or he, he got in trouble and was in trouble with the police or something like that and then, the wife was at the house cleaning up the house and, and you know, I, cause I would go past literally every day waiting to see him or see this car or see a light on him. And I didn't do it for months. And then I went past this one day and, and, and she was there and I'd never met her. I didn't know her. Um, yeah. Knocked on the door. And, and I think she kind of, by the situation, she knew what was going on. You know, you got this little eight year old, you know, I was 12 at the time, I guess. Yeah. 12 year old kid knocking on the door, asking for this man she knew his history or she found out his history. So she's like, Oh fuck. Um, 
and said he didn't live there anymore and 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 that was it and then yeah i i found out later on that that he passed away that he died and and um yeah so i don't really you know i've never had any contact or or anything with his with the wife or the ex-wife because i don't know who she where she is now or and i i kind of want it that way i don't want to you know stir things up for her and and oh i'm sure you you already have (laughs) yeah yeah. i'm sure she's heard about it (laughs) yeah um but yeah through 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 my mom and 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 some of her friends who who grew up in the town is where it all kind of we kind of pieced all the pieces of the puzzle together so to speak Wow. Yeah. I wonder what happened to the daughter. Cause I'm sure she's been impacted by this. Yeah, I'm sure. Sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you, so when you were assaulted the first time, I mean, did you even know what rape was? Did you even know what sex was? No, no. <laughs> um, no, I know. And that's why I thought I was special. Cause he told me this only happens to special boys. And again, through what he was telling me, you're a special boy. I love you. This only happens to special boys. And yes, it fucking killed me. And it was the worst pain in the world. And he ripped me to shreds and I was bleeding. And, and he kind of knocked me out through the, through the pain and, and just pushing me up against the wall um, that I didn't know. But I was so, I think I was so scared by him telling me that he'll kill me and kill my family. Mm-hmm. And, he, and then he kind of, I was at the local bus interchange where we would all go after school and he just came up to me like a normal guy and put his arm around me and walked away with me. And I spoke to my best friend about this recently. And he said, yeah, I remember this man coming up to you, but we just thought at that age that he was your dad or he was a family friend and you never fought him and you never screamed or you never fucking did anything. So it was just a normal thing. It was just that Nathan was going off with, with his dad or with whoever this guy was. So yeah, it was, I didn't know what sex was or, or anything like that was. And, and um, I guess he was my, yeah, my, my education in sex, in two sex. How would you describe yourself as a boy, like prior to that experience? I was, I guess I was your, your, your average boy. I was, you know, out, I loved playing sport with my friends and, and, you know, kicking a ball around and we, we, we lived in a cul-de-sac. I think it is it called a cul-de-sac in America as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we lived in a cul-de-sac. So all the kids from the streets would come to our, our cul-de-sac and we'd play cricket and we'd play football on the street and, you know, just all that fun stuff as, as you do as kids. I do so, not understand cricket at all. Like the more <laughs> I try to understand it, the less I under, and I'm like a girl, I'm into sports. Like I love yeah. sports. I yeah. don't understand how it can last for like three days. It's like cryptocurrency five, for me. Five, the, more I, five days. the more I learn about cricket, the more I learn about cryptocurrency, the less I understand. So maybe I'm you can help me out. Crypto. Okay. But cricket, there's, there's three versions of cricket. You've got the five day one, which is, you know, each team has, gets to bat twice. Then you've got 50 overs, so each team gets the bat for 50 overs. And then you've got 20 overs, which each team gets the bat for 20 overs. But okay, we're gonna have to watch <laughs> Again, that's a, that's a story. Sometime, so you can explain Done. it to me because I don't like, understand it. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I was a normal kid. And I actually asked my parents this through my therapy. My, my therapist asked me to ask my parents a difference. And they said, you're a normal kid. Then all of a sudden, they just thought I was an introvert and I was just growing into myself and I was a quiet little boy and I just pushed everyone away and I just wanted to go into my room and play, play with these toy cars and, and, and watch TV and film. So I was just your average little boy. I was a skinny little thing. I was, I was very fast. I was a fast runner. I was, I was a state runner. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, yeah, just a fast little kid. I was, you know, loved playing sport, loved playing with my mates and friends and my brother and sister. And, um, and then I just kind of shut off from the world and, and sat in my room and watched movies and sat downstairs and play with these toy cars and, and pushed everyone away. Yeah. Cause I was going to, I was going to ask that as far as just like red flags. Cause I mean, you just kind of answered the question that your parents just thought you were becoming introverted. Yeah. Um, but you're, you know, I guess, you know, your parents had what you're one of four, right? I was, I'm one of four. So there were four kids and yeah. Were they just like, I don't know. It seemed like they were somewhat absent, but I'm sure just kind of busy with life. I mean, it, it does seem like they were kind of checked out a little bit. They, they were. And, and I think halfway through my relationship with this man, if I can call it that mom was pregnant with my, my youngest brother. So mm-hmm. She was pregnant for nine months. So she was, you know, not busy with that, but you know, that was preoccupying her mind and dad. And and then and then my little brother was born. And so for that next year or two, it was all about it was all about them. And I'm like, yep, I'm fine. Leave me alone. I'm, you know, I'm a 10-year-old kid. I can take care of myself. And I just kind of pushed everyone away and moved them away. So my brother being born or my brother coming at that time was kind of like the per- the, the perfect time for me because then I could just go and hang out with this man and no one would question anything and jump on my bike and get out for the day. And, and um, yeah. Yeah. You were, you like felt like the lost child role. I don't know if you're familiar with like the dysfunctional family roles, but that would be yours. But was there ever a point like ever where your parents or anybody asked where, like, where were you? Like we, you oh, know. all the time. Mum would always ask, where were you? Are you okay? And if, you know, if I was hurt or if I, you know, have a black eye or if I, yeah, I was just playing with my friends and, and we got into a fight or we were playing football and, and I got hit in the head or I would just come up with, I would just lie and come up with excuses and just bullshit and lie. And, and it, was, I, it was to the point, and I say this in the book and I can't believe I'm going to say this now, but I would, I would come home from this, you know, from hanging out with this, with this man and he, you know, he raped me and my undies were full of blood. Mm. So I would go and have a shower and take my undies in the shower with me and wash them myself with soap and whatnot and try and get them, get, get them clean. Cause obviously mum and dad washed my clothes. And then I put them in the dirty basket or in the, in the laundry basket um, washed. And if I couldn't get the stains out, I would just throw my undies away. I, yeah. So I covered all my bases. Yeah. I made sure never, or for, you know, for my parents not to find out, not to, discover anything and again if they questioned or if they asked or what's wrong you look sick or you're you know i just feel sick or i'm you know i i got hit hard at school or i got no fight or you know just kid excuses Mm -hmm. so for any you know parents or teachers or anybody i mean i'm not um as versed in this subject probably as you are but like what would be some some red flags or some warning signs that somebody, I, mean, I think just about if they, res- go ahead. Of course. No, sorry. Of course. If they just, if they close off, if, if you've got this kid who is, who, who's just full of life and happy and, you know, affectionate with them and, and a normal kid. And then all of a sudden one day is just so closed off. Won't let you touch them. Wants no affection, just sits in his room all day or won't hang out with his brother and sister ask and i think the most important thing i was I, I, and i talk about this in the book i was a keynote at, at the seventh annual child abuse conference of america probably in 2018 or 19 now mm-hmm. and 
there was this, this counselor who came up and she said, the most important thing you can do for your kid is when they're a kid, like two, three years old or at that age where they're starting to develop and, and talk and, and learn about life is to tell them that it's your penis, it's your vagina. It belongs to you. No one's allowed to touch it. It's called a penis and a vagina. It's not, you know, we always have nicknames for our, you know, for, for, for kids. And just to let them know that it says no one's allowed to touch it. Because if you don't, and if as parents, we joke about it and play with them and, and you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff, then if some random man comes up and does it, they think it's okay. And they think it's fine. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing as well is to tell your kid that it's not their fault. They're not going to get in trouble and it's mm-hmm. okay to tell. Mm-hmm. Tell us if something happens to you. Tell us if, if a man's creeping or, or is a creep or a lady's a creep and you don't like it and they're doing something wrong and they're saying something and they're touching you wrong, tell us it's not your fault. You are not going to get in trouble. And I have said this to quite a few people here in back in Australia and here in the States. And so many parents have said, no way. I can't have that conversation with my kid. There's no way I'm going to talk about that stuff with my kid. And That's I'm like, ridiculous. What the fuck are you doing? These are your kids. This is your flesh and blood. This is you. How can you not have this conversation, this awkward conversation for 20 minutes that could save their life, that could change their life forever? So I think for, you know, for anyone listening, for parents listening, is just to be aware and just look for the signs of, of, pushing away and, and no affection and, and not wanting to talk and not wanting love and just wanting to sit in their room and, and communicate, talk to them and, and just listen. I think even as adults now, I think the most important thing is having that support system and having people who will just sit there and listen to you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so when you told your parents, um, I don't know, what, what has that experience been like in, you know, you, you talked about the initial experience of telling them, you, t- you talked about this article that was written about you in the newspaper there. And initially yep. um, your mom asking if you could be kept anonymous, but I guess, yeah, w- w- I would assume that they have not read the book. I mean, it's pretty graphic. <laughs> Dad, Dad's not going to read the book. Dad's just old and he's, you know, he's not well. And, and I don't think he wants to read it. Mom, mom's reading it now. God, it must be. And hard. I think oh. I think they're all they're all waiting for me to leave Australia to come back here so they can read it and kind of not have me there. And mm-hmm. you know, Mum and I have spoken a little about it, but it's it's hard for my parents. You know, they 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 it's I think the guilt is there and they don't understand and and you know they feel some shame because they weren't there for me to help me and to you know everything else. So Mum's asked me questions, but the questions Mum has asked me is has nothing to do with the man and the rape. It's about mundane shit afterwards that she didn't know about that I've done in my life. Cause I still think they're still trying to make sense understand, of it and yeah. accept, be responsible. And they don't know how to talk about it. And I, I understand that, you know, I, I spoke to a therapist and my therapist said, Nathan, it's okay for you to be angry at your family mm-hmm. or it's okay for you to be angry at your parents. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but I don't, but it's okay to, you have every reason to be angry at your parents. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard. My sister's reading it now and my brother, me and my brother are close and he, he really wanted to read it. So I gave him an early draft to read and he's reading the book now that the finished draft and, and everything else, um, which is quite different from an early draft. So 
I'll wait till they read it all properly and we can sit and chat, but they know, they know why I'm doing this. Mm. They know why I've told my story and I've written it and I've come out about it because they see the reaction I'm getting from people. They see, cause they've received emails from people who have read it in, in Canberra, in, in my town. Um, just, you know, these people are in amazement and saying, wow, 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 wow. This book is amazing. Nathan's amazing. He's going to save lives. He's, he's already made me think about my family and look at my kids differently and talk to my kids differently. And these people weren't affected by rape or abuse or anything like that, but these people are, are looking at their family and their children differently and, and the way they speak to their kids as well. So, you know, it's hard. It's very hard for my family because, you know, They've seen me suffer my whole life. They've seen me depressed my whole life. They've seen me wanting to kill myself my whole life and not knowing why and going, what the fuck is wrong with you? And why are you upset? Why can't you stop crying? What can we do? And all I would say for the years and years and years is you won't understand. Mm. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You got, you don't know what, what I'm, you, yeah, it's okay. You don't know it. You don't, you won't understand it. It doesn't matter. Leave me alone. I'll be okay. And I'm not sure if you want to ask me this later, but, but when I first came out about this to my sister and my mum, yep. the first thing they said was, wow, that explains everything. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, you know, the who, the what, the when, the where, all the, all the basic questions, all the, all the questions. But one of the first things they said was, wow, that explains everything. Now we understand why you were the kid you were. Now we understand why you did the things you did. Now we understand why you are the person that you are today. And what did that mean to you to hear that? It was relief. It was, it was comforting. It was like, okay, now they understand me. Now they're not going to judge me. Mm-hmm. Now they're not going to look at me and go, what the fuck is wrong with this kid? Now they, you know, they're going to love me for who I am. They're going to love me for what I've been through. They're going to understand me and accept me for, for who I am and what I've been through and where I'm at in my life now and where, I, where my life is heading. Um, I've got the greatest family in the world. I've got the sweetest family in the I world. I know. It's so weird. What's up with <laughs> yeah. that? You have like a nice, normal, functional, loving I family. I do. I do. Is and there any alcoholism? Is there any, I mean, you, you got There's, anything interesting going on in there or it's just, um, you guys are just a normal fucking healthy bunch. Just a normal healthy bunch. Like my, my, my dad and my brothers and, and my, my mom and my sister never really drank, but Maltese people love to drink and they love their whiskey and their beer. So, so, you know, dad used to drink a lot and my brothers drink a lot, but you know, no alcoholism, no, nothing crazy, but I kind of went that way. And, um, my youngest brother's a bit of a rebel and, yeah. um, so yeah, no, no. Yeah. I have a normal, great fucking family. Wow. Have they, have any of them sought therapy since all this stuff has come out? My sister has, um, and she's had her own stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, again, and I say it in a book about her, her husband passed away and just dealing with that and dealing with a one and a half year old son. And, um, so she's gone to therapy for that. And also about my situation. And, and I think my, one of my other brothers have, but my parents don't. So my parents won't. I think my, yeah, again, my parents are just too old, too old school Europeans. That shit doesn't happen in our family. Mm-hmm. Let's just try and fucking forget about it and, yeah, and move on. Yeah, yeah, move on life. and yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> did you let you talk about a lot of people in the book? 
I'm always, I always ask this question um, to people that write, write memoirs. Who did you let read it beforehand? Like, was there any consideration there as far as like, are you okay with me I, putting this in or not? Yeah, I pretty much all the important stuff, all the big stuff I reached out to everyone and asked. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yes, can you just change my name? Or can you, you know, just don't put my name? Because, you know, some of these people are married now and have families and have yeah. kids and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's heavy and it's a lot. So I did speak to most literally to everyone and said, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, I've got my memoir, I'm writing it. Can I put this or can I do that? And, you know, there might've been one or two little things that I, I didn't ask mm-hmm. and they've come back at me and said, why the fuck did you do that? And, and I explain it to them and I tell them why, and then they understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the majority it's, it's, it's been good. I've had nothing from the people who are in the book. I've had nothing but, but love and praise and, and I love you for this and, and you're doing an amazing thing. There's no net, there hasn't been really any backlash yet. Good. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that I'm, I'm waiting for the trolls and I'm waiting for the haters online because oh, you know, there are always oh, going to be wow. those haters. Wow. And, and the way I look at that, the way I look at these haters is that, you can say to me, you deserve to be raped and you're an asshole, you're a homophobe and you're this and you're that. Mm-hmm. Call me what you want because what I've been through in my life, yeah, you calling me these fair. names is nothing. So go fuck yourself. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like I had somebody give me a hard time about being on Dr. Drew's podcast and I was just like, can you just be happy for me? This is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, it's their own insecurities. It's their own hate. I have had one guy, if I can go on it just quickly, I've had one yes, guy please. reach out to me um, from the Midwest here in America. I did a podcast or I did an interview on TV or something, Jesus, before, before COVID. So it was, you know, two years ago and he sent me an email I said, you're a fucking idiot. Shut up. Why the fuck are you talking about that? And just swearing and swearing and swearing, saying all this stuff and shut and the fuck responded, up. And you were raped as a kid too. Yeah. Get over yourself and shut <laughs> no, up. No, I'm saying that that's why he, you should have responded with that. Like, oh, okay. Oh. You were raped as a kid too, huh? <laughs> well, I, I did. Well, he did tell me, he said, I was abused by the Catholic church and I got $350,000 and I'm not saying anything anymore. And I spoke to some people about this and they said, the reason why he has so much anger and rage and hatred towards you is because- it. Exactly. Yes, he's got this half a quarter of a million dollar check, but mm-hmm. he hasn't done the work on himself. Mm-hmm. So he still has all this anger, all this hatred inside of him toward his perpetrator and, and, and what's going on in his life that he sees me, someone who's been through it, but has done the work to get out the other side and he doesn't understand it. Well, because he's and- still silenced, right? He was silenced as a kid. He couldn't yeah. talk about it then. And then now with that settlement, he's still silent. So. Yeah. But, you know, at least go and get some therapy. Go and, go and speak to someone. You don't have to come out in the papers and everything else, but go and speak to someone so that you can kind of understand and, and get oh, some closure so and move forward. I know. I know. But God, I mean, most a lot of people are just so sick. That's not even yeah. consideration. Um, so one thing that I thought was interesting with you too is, you talk about it in, in high school a little bit, not remembering certain things, but it seems like when the abuse was going on, cause I hear I'm somebody that remembers everything like pretty much from yeah. my childhood, but a lot of people, a lot of adult children, they don't have many memories. Um, but for, for you, it doesn't seem like you 
you disassociated that much when, I mean, you do talk about just like not, you talk about like looking away or not on the ground, but it seems like you have very vivid memories of the abuse that you endured. Yeah, I do. Of, of the, of that. And also of the, um, cruise lounges and sex clubs and, you know, from 15 years old, I, I remember it. I, I remember it vividly. I remember how I put my hands and how I would look away and how I would just stand there and wait for him to call me over. And, 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 you know, his smell and him, him sweating on me. I remember, I, I remember those things. And, you know, it's always a, it's always the hard things that you remember. It's always the shitty things you remember. Um, but these things, I just, I don't know, vividly, I remember these things. And it's funny because I would talk to my friends and talk to my family and some things I've written in a book got that have nothing to do with the rape. And they're like, holy fuck, how do you remember that? And, and <laughs> now we remember and that's right, that happened. And so it's, I don't know. And I think as I was writing the book, more and more things came up. And I think because I, before I wrote this book, I'd been doing you know, 10 years of constant therapy and group therapy and EMDR and AA that, you know, through therapy and it was very intense therapy and very hard and and stuff. It was, you know, we went deep and we went dark to a semi, you know, she would semi hypnotize me and we would go there and remember things. And, and, and I, again, in the book, Stanley, my therapist would say, Nathan, if you can't remember things, write things down. Or he would ask me questions and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And he goes, all right, we'll go away for this week, write it down and come back to me. So I had pages upon pages of just memories and, and things that I remember and, and not uh, things that I remember about the rape and about the abuse and about this man, but also about my relationships and also about the, the violence and the sex and the drugs. So there were all these things that I remember. And when I was writing these things and writing my book, as a result of that, other things came up. And other memories came up and other things that I had pushed down and pushed away and suppressed and, and kind of forgotten came up. And, and but yeah, the, the, the man I remember, the way he abused me, that's just a couch, like I said, the leather couch with the tears in them and how those tears would tear into my legs. I remember that. And the fact that he would never give me anything in the beginning, it was just always a glass of water. But then as the relationship progressed, he would give me a packet of chips or crisps, as you'd say here, and, and soft drink and ice cream. And, and so it just, the relationship progressed as, 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 as the time went on. Um, but yeah, there are some things, I guess, like you, I remember most things, but then there are some other things that I just totally forget. And my friends would, would say to me or, you know, things from a year or two ago that I'm like, really, I, I don't remember that. Um, So would you say, I mean, obviously there's been like a lot of, um, a lot of ways you've been impacted and how it's impacted your life as an adult, but would you say that the largest thing would be just the, um, the inability to have intimate relationships with other people? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, you're definitely, you were like the avoidant attacher. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm the anxious attacher. So we're perfect for each other. <laughs> perfect. Done. All right. Let's do it. Let's go on a date. Yeah. No, I, um, I like these girls and I wanted to be with these girls and have relationships with them. But then as soon as it happened, I, I, I lost my shit and I couldn't let you in and, and couldn't let you get close. And I would push you away. I'd p- build that wall and, and, um, just, 
yeah, I wasn't very nice. I would cheat or I would, I would do what I could to get out of it. I would tell you what you wanted to hear. I would tell you that I loved you just because you wanted to hear it, not because I meant it. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't very nice. And I, I own it. I go into it a lot in my book, as, as you probably read it towards the end there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of pages of, of me just talking about my relationships and how I acted and, and how I wasn't a nice guy and how I, you know, yeah, I, I you know, it's, it's something I'm, I'm ashamed of. And, and I just, I didn't know how to have a relationship. I didn't know how to trust, how to love, how to let someone in fully. And, and then during sex, or we'd have sex, as soon as sex was done, I needed to get away. I needed just to don't fucking touch me, leave me alone. I had to get out of the bed. Mm. Um, but then, yeah, as soon as the sex was done, I'd have to get away. And, and I remember this girl said to me, you can at least touch me. And I would just pat her on the back like she was a dog or something or, you know, like a, a puppy and just pat her. And I just, I knew what I was doing. I knew it was wrong but I, I didn't understand it and I didn't know how to deal with it and how to handle it and how to understand it because I, I hadn't done the work on myself yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what was done to you. Exactly. Absolutely. And I, I noticed that I could see myself what was doing, what was being done to me. I was doing to these people, mm-hmm. you know, I would never, and I never have, I would I'd never be violent with a woman or I, you know, I would never abuse a child, but my actions, my, my, manipulations and the lies and the grooming so to speak was 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 all there so what you've obviously you mentioned you know emdr group therapy um a regular talk therapy what do you think's been the most you know beneficial for your healing at first at first it was therapy and therapy saved my life and i'll say this to anyone therapy saved my life being able to just be in that room and and with a stranger and just be able to and I've always done this from the very beginning. As soon as I went into therapy, I was very just truthful and honest and just put it all out there because I didn't want to lie about it. I didn't want to be half-assed, mm-hmm. if I can say. So therapy did, but then so did AA. And AA was amazing because whether you're in AA for 20 years or two weeks, we're all on the same level. Yeah, It's a family. We all support. We all, there's a lot of love in that. And and, you know, we've all got similar experiences, addictions and, and abuse and, and, and whatnot. So AA was amazing. And I, I, I loved AA and being in AA. But therapy, if, if I can say anything, it, it was therapy more so just because that's where I've spent most of my time. And that's where I first really came out and understood and had these therapists ask me these questions that really made me think and really made me go there and discover things about my past and, and what I went through and, and where I was at. So um, I'd recommend it to anyone. I, I, I really would therapy and, and also AA, mm-hmm. you know, if you're there, if you need it. Um, I think everyone needs the talk steps. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And just everyone needs someone to talk to. Everyone needs someone to listen. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that's the problem. As adults, we, we, we're scared to talk about because we're scared of how we're going to get judged and how people are going to think and shame and, and toxic masculinity, especially for males. You know, men are, men are taught to never cry and talk about their problems and we just get on with life and we're strong and we're this and that. But what I've learned and what I've adapted into my life is that 
the more open and honest and real you are, the more you can cry, the more you're vulnerable, the more you know how to communicate, the more of a man you are. Because that's what people want in relationships. Whether you're in a relationship with a male or female, your partner wants you to be open, to communicate, to be able to share, to be able to express how you feel and what's going on. But there are still so many men in the world who don't know how to do that and who won't do that. And especially men who have been through abuse. Um, yeah, we're talking to you, guy in the Midwest. who <laughs> <laughs> got the settlement. <laughs> You need yeah. someone to talk to, okay? Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, they just keep it all inside and they just fucking, it just builds and builds and builds until one day they lose their shit and they they go fucking crazy and they kill someone or they, you know, go on a rampage or they do whatever they do or they kill themselves or whatever the situation is. So I think it's just being able to talk to someone, being able to be close to someone and to have someone listen and just to take that first step, that first step of, of, saying, I was abused, I was raped, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, whatever the situation is, because trauma is all relative. Mm-hmm. Trauma is trauma. You know, I've been through what I've been through. You can, you know, go outside and trip over and graze your knee and it's the worst thing in the world and you want to fucking kill yourself or whatever the situation is. So it's all about how you handle it. It's all about how you deal with your trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I wrote this book. This book isn't written just for people who have been through sexual abuse. This is for anyone who's been through any kind of trauma, mental illness, PTSD, domestic violence, you know, sexual abuse, whatever the situation is, it's all relative. You know, we all suffer through it. We all suffer through shame. We all suffer through some kind of toxic relationship. Um, and we all need to, you know, Every single one of us, as much as we all think we've got a perfect life and this, that, and the other, we all need to talk to someone. And I think that's the problem with the world today. People don't want to do the work on themselves because if I do the work on myself, then who knows what's going to come up? Who knows what I'm going to have to deal with? And my perfect little bubble, my perfect little lifestyle that I've created for myself is going to burst. It's not going to be real. And I need to deal with real issues and real things that are going on in my life but that's just too heavy and that's just too much. So I'd rather live this pretend life, pretend everything is great. I've got the last out on people on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got the perfect relationship. I've got the perfect life. I've got the perfect job. And I'll just pretend that it is, even though I'm so miserable and upset and depressed and anxious and whatever, whatever I'm going through. And I'll, I'll never talk about it because that's just going to be too hard. Well, I just want to acknowledge everything that you've been through. You've turned out pretty okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty okay. You know, I, I, for me, it's about being aware of it, knowing when they're coming up, knowing when it's depression, knowing when whatever's going on. And just, I think the most important thing for all of us is just to breathe, just to take those deep breaths and, and ground yourself and, and sit in the moment. And instead of trying to run away from what's going on, sit in it, let it hit you, let it hit you in your body and see where it hits you, see what it does to you and then learn from it, um, grow from it and, and evolve and, and, and so that when it does hit you again, when these things come on you again, you know how to deal with it. You know how to move forward. And again, like I said in the very beginning, for me, the most important thing is having those, that support network around me and, and constantly doing the work on myself because what happened to me is now ingrained in me. It's a part of my DNA. It's a part of who I am. It's never going to leave me. It's like when people tell 
when people say to people, when people say to other people, just get over it, just move on. You can't get over it. You're not going to move on. It's about it's about growing with it, dealing with it, evolving with it, learning from it, and and moving forward with it. Um, because it's it's always going to be there. Was that hard for you in the in the beginning, or is it still hard for you today? Are there still times where um, you struggle in finding an acceptance as far as what, you oh, know? What absolutely. I, I, you know, I still suffer from imposter syndrome all the time. I still suffer from, you know, some shame and, and I don't deserve to be happy and I don't deserve to feel love and I don't deserve to be in a relationship. I, I still suffer from all that and it, it will always be there. But again, it's just a matter of, of knowing it and knowing how to deal with it, moving forward with it, not, not throwing it away or throwing it away after you've dealt with it, not trying to dodge it because it's just going to come back and hit you again. So it, it is hard and it, it'll always be hard. It's always going to be there. And, you know, but I've done the work on myself now that I know who I am. I know what I want. I know what's important to me in my life and where I'm at in the world. And, and that's, that's all I can do. That's, that's all I can and do is, is just to move forward with that. And, and life is simple. Life is really fucking simple, but we complicate it with all the background noise and all the, you know, all the bullshit in, the, 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 in, our, in our ears. Mm-hmm. And 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 social media because it's not real. It's not real life. Um, mine kind of is. <laughs> so mine, post right? is my real life. <laughs> <laughs> no, so is mine. I try and keep mine as real as it is. You know, there's no fluffy photos. There's no, you know, if this is me. This is who I am. If you like it, great. If you don't, then then I'm not for you. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> so do you want to talk about, you've got some exciting things in the works. I don't know what you want to share, but um, you want sure. To yeah. So anything? I, yeah, I had my book come out, my memoir toy cars come out, I think beginning of May in Australia. So we're doing a big release here in the States and you can order it online now through Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble and, and, and whatnot, all the old online bookstores you can buy it from, but we're doing a big, a big launch here and, you know, speaking with producers and, and, my PR and, and, and my team, I've been asked to host a, you know, kind of like a six-part documentary series of men talking to men about men's issues. Mm-hmm. So we're in the, in the works of creating that now and, and getting that up and running. And, and um, there's also, you know, producers, again, wanting to turn my book, my, my memoir into a six to eight part kind of, six to eight part uh, limited series for a streaming service, for a network, whatever. We're, again, still all in the works. It's still very early days because the book did just come out. Um, I'm organising a global march for child sex trafficking and 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 um, I'm a global ambassador for the CLF, for the Child Liberation Foundation. And I was talking about this, how sex trafficking and child, child slavery and child sex trafficking is one of the fastest growing industries in the world. So I was talking about the statistics and there's over 10 million kids are sex trafficked every year and it's a billion dollar industry. And, you know, I can sell you cocaine one time and heroin one time, but I can sell you these kids 10 times a day. Mm. The average age is 12 to 13 years old. And it's, mm. you know, these kids are, are, are raped thousands of times in their, in their lifetime. So, you know, again, a taboo subject, again, something we don't want to know about because it's all about money and power. And most of the people doing this and involved in this, it's, it's money and power. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was talking about this in another interview, in a previous interview before COVID, and we said, oh, well, let's do this. Let's organize this, this, this march. 
And the interviewer said, well, let's just do it for, she came on board with me and she said, let's just do it for the States. I'm like, no, if we do it, we do it. We do a global thing because it's a global pandemic. Yeah, It, it really is. It's, you know, South America, Asia, it happens in Australia. It's a, a massive thing here in the States. The statistics are high here in the States and Europe. And so it's all over the world. So if we do it, we get everyone involved. So, you know, organizing that and doing a lot of keynote speaking and, and being invited to be, you know, on, on boards and charities and work with organizations. So there's, again, it's, it's something I never thought I would do. It's, it's, a, it's a, a journey I never thought I'd go on. It's like sliding doors. I could have gone open one door and gone through there and I'd probably be dead. I'd be in jail or I'd, you know, be an addict on the gut in a gutter somewhere or wherever, but I decided to go the other way and get myself clean and clean myself up and, and learn about my past and about my history. And as a result of that, you know, I, I talk about karma when I was doing bad things, karma came back and bit me in the ass. Now I've written this book and I'm helping people and I'm saving lives and I'm doing all this work karma's come back and is, is, is giving to me. It's, 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 you know, affording me all these amazing opportunities and to work with amazing people. And that's what I'm looking forward to is, is working with these amazing advocates and, and activists in the world who are doing amazing work. And that's what I'm looking forward to doing is working with these people and, and creating change and being the face of the movement and, and really, really trying to help as many people as I can and, 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 you know, do good in the world because we've got one life to live. And for me, I don't want to wake up in 30 years and think, what the fuck have I done? I've wasted my life. I want to do as much as I can and help as many people as I can and just, you know, give back. Well, you're doing it. I'm trying. I'm trying. Really great. So I was thinking maybe I'm I'm not going to do this, but I always have like my music, my, in between my um, interviews. And I was like thinking that I could do karma chameleon for boy George, but I think it's too corny for me. (laughs) Nice one. I like that song. (laughs) Love that. My sister loved boy George. So I, yeah, I would listen to boy George a lot as a kid with her. Um, So yeah, no, I think, you know, it's just, it's, it's like yourself. You've learned from your past and what you were and what you did and your addictions and, and your relationships with these boys and, and, these Brian's you, you brought these Brian's and now you're giving back, you're giving back to people and you're educating and you're helping and, and, you know, there's no better feeling, so to speak, that it, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a great feeling to have. And, and, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard sometimes. It's hard to talk about this stuff because it's fucking heavy shit. So it, it is hard to talk about this stuff all the time, 24 seven. So you just need to, again, to make sure that you're able to get away from it for a bit and just forget about it and, Again, surround yourself with the right people. Have have hobbies. Do things that are going to make you better, a better person, and just feel lighter and feel yeah, feel loved and feel understood. Well, where can people find you? Um, at the moment, the easiest way is probably Instagram, Instagram, Facebook, but more Instagram because that's where I'm updating most of my or putting most of my stuff on and, and talking about what's going on with me and. My website is in the process of just getting completely overhauled and updated. So that will be out soon. And that's just nathanspateri.com. But get me on Instagram, reach out to me if you need to. And, and I'm happy to you know, to speak to guys and, and collaborate and work with people and, and, you know, be a part of this movement and really create change in the world. And my, yeah, my Instagram is just Nathan Spateri. I'll put it in the show notes. Of course well, you will. And fucking <laughs> this has been wonderful. Thank you for being so honest and open and you're truly an inspiration. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we got to connect. 
absolutely. And, and let's do this again in a few years time when we're, you know, on that journey, really in that journey. So thank you so much for having me. And, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. up today's episode as always i hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey if you didn't seek professional help thanks again to nathan for sharing for everything for being so fucking brave you truly exemplify courage and you are helping so many people and i'm just really excited to see what lies ahead for you um, so check out the show notes for links to his book as well as other ways to contact him. I'm going to do an event with him on the Patreon, uh, like a book club event in a couple weeks. So buy your book and then join the Patreon and then you can talk to Nathan. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Adult Child Pod. If you have comments, questions, or concerns, hit a girl up. See show notes for more details on that. And as always, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, please. And I'm going to see you mofos next week. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. Don't let it all go.